I have some um, bulletin bloopers here. I don't know if you've ever uh, read these before, but sometimes people who are doing the bulletins make mistakes. And so these have been captured in a little booklet called Bulletin Bloopers, and I'll read a few of them. Bertha Belch, a missionary from Africa, will be speaking tonight at Calvary Memorial Church. Come tonight and hear Bertha Belch all the way from Africa. The sermon this morning is entitled, Jesus Walks on the Water. The sermon tonight is entitled, Searching for Jesus. <laughs> a bean supper, a bean supper will be held on Tuesday evening in the church fellowship hall. Music will follow. At the evening service tonight, the sermon will be, What is Hell? Come early and listen to our choir practice. <laughs> For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. I'm just me for those who have children and don't know that they have children. Okay. The ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind. They may be seen in the basement on Friday. <laughs> this evening at 7 p.m., there will be a sing-along in the park across from the church. Bring a blanket and come prepared to sin. <laughs> I think they meant sing. The... <laughs> The, the Low Self-Esteem Support Group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. Please use the back door. Okay, turn to 1 Corinthians 6. We've been in a series on family and marriage. And the week that I was sick, that Pastor Jimmy preached for me, and, and by the way, that's a... Wonderful thing, if you are sick and can't preach and you're in a series on family and marriage, uh, Pastor Jimmy Evans happened to just be in town that week doing a television taping for a show and also having a board meeting, and so that's a pretty good substitute, you know. Uh, but the Lord had already given me a message for that week. As I began studying and praying over that message again, and I thought, well, I'll just use it in another series on family and marriage because I really thought that we were going to end it on Father's Day. But the Lord just said to me, we need this message. And as I studied it, it's actually become two messages now. So this, this is part one. Next week will be part two of a message entitled, Becoming One. Now, listen to me. Whether you're married or not, this is a principle that we need to understand. This principle is central to living the Christian life. It's not just for married people. This is something that every person needs to understand. I believe, personally that this principle is at the root of most problems. This principle is at the root of nearly every counseling problem that a pastor has. Every person, nearly, nearly every person that comes into his office with a problem, this is the principle that will solve that problem. So this is a principle that is just... It's a life in me. It's a life principle. It's something that I want you to understand... I want you to follow me clearly. I want you to ask the Lord to put this revelation in your heart. Becoming one. Now, there are two definitions of the word one. They're exactly opposite. 
but they both are definitions of the word one. The first definition is singular, separate, or alone. Something is singular, it's separate, or it is alone, that's one. For instance, I'll give you an example. There is one cookie left. When you hear that, there's only one. It's singular, it's alone, it's, uh, it has feelings of loneliness, and you need to go because cookies don't like to be alone, and you need to take care of that cookie, all right? So, that's one definition of the word one. Here's the other definition of the word one. Joined together in unity. Joined together in unity. In other words, there is a definition of one that doesn't mean singular. It actually means plural, but it means many members have come together to be one in purpose, one in unity, one with the same goal. And that's what the Bible talks about when it's talking about becoming one. My nephew plays football for the uh, Naval Academy. And when he was a, a senior in high school, they were trying to come up with a slogan for the year. And he came up with the slogan, 11 hearts, one goal. And they put it on T-shirts and billboards around town. And they've actually just adapted that and kept that for their football team. 11 hearts, one goal. What he was saying was, even though we are 11 different persons, we have different personalities, we have different identities, we each even have different functions, we have one purpose and one goal. That's what happens when we come to Christ. It's not just what happens when we get married. It's what happens before we get married or whenever we get married. It happens when we come to Christ. When we come to Christ, we are to die and become one with the Lord. God's purposes are to become first in our life. If we have a problem becoming one with the body of Christ, or if we have a problem becoming one with our spouse, we actually have a problem becoming one with the Lord. And you will never be able to be one with the body, nor one with your friends, one in fellowship, one with the small group that you meet with, or one with your spouse until you become one with the Lord. That's what's central to the issue, is becoming one with the Lord. Now, we're going to talk today about how we become one. This message, again, was originally one message, and I had three points. How we become one, why we become one, and what happens when we don't become one. So we'll talk about why we become one and what happens when we don't become one next week. This, the whole week, we're going to talk about how do we become one. How do we become one? Now, are you in 1 Corinthians 6? Okay, we're not there yet. We're going to go through some other scripture first. I want you to notice, if you're new here, we have sermon notes in the bulletin. Obviously, there aren't a lot of points on there because I'm just going through one point this week, how we become one. But I want you to notice the scripture that's on there. I will always, always, always give you a lot of Scripture. The reason is because the Bible is the only thing that changes your life. My desire is for you to take these Scripture and read them through your daily quiet time during the week. I give you plenty of Scripture that you can take the whole week and read. You can read the whole chapter. You can read the chapter before, the chapter afterwards, and let the Lord continue to speak to you. So we're going to talk about becoming one. We're going to go through some Scripture before we get to 1 Corinthians 6. And so all of these will be on the PowerPoint. Genesis chapter 2 is the first time this scripture appears in the Bible. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice the words, become one. Become one. But notice after the words become one is the word flesh. That's important for us to understand what this verse is talking about. They shall become one flesh. Flesh. The verse then again is in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew 19, verse 3 says, 
the Pharisees came to him, testing him. And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, let me tell you something. The word just is not in the original text. Actually, what they said was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus said, have you not read? Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. If you ask the Lord a question and he said to you, have you not read the Bible? Think about the response, how, how he's responding to this. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? One version says, any reason at all. And Jesus said, what, have you never read the Bible? Why are you asking me this question if you've read the Bible? Have you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female and said, for this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother, and the two and join, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two. This is the Bible. This is Jesus' own. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, let me, let me say it this way, not God, Moses permitted you because of the hardness of your heart. Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. That's not the way my father designed it. That's not the way we designed it in the beginning. Now, I want to just comment on something. He said, have you not read that in the beginning God made them male and female and said, for this reason. For what reason? God made them male and female for this reason. What reason? What is the reason? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Why? Because God made them male and female in his image. Man and woman are the image of God. You can't look at me alone and see God fully. You can't look at my wife alone and see God fully. If you want to see God fully, you're going to have to see her and me together. You're going to have to look at both of us. Both of us are the image of God. Male and female. Male is not the image of God. And female is not the image of God. Male and female is the image of God. You following me this? God made us. When God made mankind, He made male man and female mankind. He made male and female. This is the way that God. So when you look at a man and a woman, you see God. And that's why God hates divorce. Now, He doesn't hate divorced people. He hates divorce because what it says is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit may split up one day. That's what it says. See, God makes man in His image, male and female, joins them together, and He wants them to represent to the whole earth, this is what, you can look at us and see God. You can look at my marriage and see God. That's what He wants. But when man and woman divorce, then what it says to the world is, hey, God may split up one day. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit may not truly be one, but they are one. And God gets very upset when His image says, we don't want to live together anymore. We don't want to walk together anymore. We have irreconcilable differences. Listen, God has no irreconcilable differences. Every difference has been reconciled in Jesus. 
And God wants us to, wants the men to represent Jesus to the world. In the same way that Jesus says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll love you no matter what. He wants a man to say that to his wife. And he wants a woman to say, I'll serve you, and I'll love you, and I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you, like the church is supposed to do to Jesus. So that's what's so important about this. All right, there's the scripture again, the two shall become one flesh. It's also in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 2. It says, the Pharisees came and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Now, let me explain to you why the Pharisees are asking this, all right? Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is doing the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is just a, a something for you to understand. Why did the Pharisees come and ask him this? It's because when Jesus showed up, he brought a higher standard than the law. You have to understand this. Grace always goes farther than the law. Always goes farther than the law. For instance, in Matthew 5, when Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he said. He said, you have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. Where had they heard that said? The law, right? You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. But I, grace, I say to you, don't even be angry at your brother. Well, see, under the law, I could hate you, I just couldn't kill you. Now I can't even, not, not, not only can I not hate you, I can't even be angry with you. Under grace. The righteousness of grace exceeds the righteousness of law. Jesus also said in Matthew 5, You have heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Where does it say, Thou shalt not commit adultery? The law. But I, grace say to you, don't even lust in your heart. Well, see, under the law, I could lust in my heart. I'd be okay. I just couldn't commit adultery. Under grace, I can't have those thoughts anymore. Are you all following me? See, this is why I love it when people say, I don't, I don't give 10% because I give by grace. I say, great, that means you give more than 10%. Because the law says 10%, grace says more. Grace says it's all God's. You see what I'm saying? But this is what else Jesus said in that, in that sermon on that. You have heard it said that if a man divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, but I say, grace says, go farther. Grace says, forgive. Grace says, live with her anyway. Grace says, forgive her and love her the same way Jesus forgives and loves you, no matter what you do. So they come to him then, and they said, they're trying to get him to contradict the law, see. So they come and they said, well, well how come Moses said? All right, so look back at Mark 10. They came in, tested him, said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote to you this precept. But from the beginning, it was not so. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them, male and female, in his image, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That's the third time this phrase is in the Bible. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, by the way, I want you to notice something. The Bible gives a reason for divorce. And a lot of us have fit missed it. It doesn't give a valid reason. It just gives the reason for every divorce. Hardness of heart. And listen to me. I'm not trying to put you down if you've been divorced. But I'll make this statement. I'm sure everyone here who's even experienced it would agree with me. In every divorce, there's at least one hard heart. See, Moses permitted you to divorce because of this reason. Hardness of heart. Now, in some divorces, there's two hard hearts. 
But in every divorce, there's always one hard heart. Can you imagine if in, in, in any marriage situation there were two soft, pliable hearts? Do you think there'd still be a divorce? If there were two people willing to allow God to work in their lives and to change them, would there still be a divorce? All right, so that's the third time it's in the Bible. The phrase, they shall become one flesh, is also in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there it is again. The two shall become one flesh. That's what we're talking about today. It's in the Bible five times, that phrase. The next one is where we want to get to. Now, before we read 1 Corinthians 6, let me tell you this. It's in the Bible five times. The two shall become one flesh. That phrase is in the Bible five times. Four of those times it refers to marriage. What we're about to read, it says the two shall become one flesh, and it's not referring to marriage. And it gives us a key to understanding what becoming one is talking about. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, does that say your soul is a member of Christ? Hello? Does it say your spirits? And I'm not saying your spirits and your soul are. I'm just telling you that right now it's talking about your body. Your physical body right there. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now listen carefully. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her, one flesh, one body? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Now look at that. This time, the fifth time this phrase is in the Bible, the two shall become one flesh, is referring to adultery. It's referring to immorality, to fornication. What it says is when a man joins himself with a woman physically, he becomes one body, one flesh with her. So this is something that, that has always bothered me. And when the Lord showed me this, it's, it's, it just blows me away to think about this. The two shall become one flesh is only referring to the act of coming together physically. Every time it's in the Bible, whether it's referring to marriage or immorality, all it's referring to is when a man and woman come together. In other words, what it's saying in Genesis 2 and, and Matthew 19 and Mark 10 and Ephesians 5, these other references, it says a man one day is going to leave his father and mother, he's going to be joined to his wife, and they're going to come together physically. And they're going to be one body because they're going to join their bodies physically together. That's all it's talking about. They shall become one flesh. But is that what makes a successful marriage? Just you coming together physically and having sex, is now you're guaranteed now to have success in your marriage? It doesn't have anything to do with it, does it? So how can we be successful? Well, maybe becoming one, just those words, see it says become one flesh. Maybe there's more to becoming one than just joining our bodies together. Look at the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Well, wouldn't it be amazing if my wife and I could also become one spirit? Not just one body, not just one flesh, 
But what about if we became one in purpose? What about if we became one in unity? What if about if we became one in heart? What about if we became one going in the same direction with the same goals, one in vision? What about that? What would that do for our marriage? If my wife and I became one spirit with the Lord together and we decide we're going to go with the Lord, with the Spirit of the Lord, where God goes, we're going to go and we're going to go there together. What would that do for our marriage? Well, how do you become one spirit? How, how, would, you, how would a person become one spirit with his wife or, or with her husband? Or how would a person become one spirit with the body? Well, the same way you became one spirit with the Lord. How did you become one spirit with the Lord? Well, here's the bad news. You had to die. That's the way you became one spirit with the Lord. The way you became one spirit with the Lord is one day, and for me it was 21 years ago in a motel room called Jake's Motel, room 12. It's, it's not a high dollar place. It, 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 actually, the rent, it was $12. <laughs> I've never, that's the lowest I've ever paid for a hotel room, $12. So, Jake's Motel, room 12, $12. Anyway, that's where I became one with the Lord. How do you become one with the Lord? You have to die. In that motel room 21 years ago, this is what I did. I said to God, no longer will I live my life to serve and please me. From now on, I will live my life to serve and please you. I will die so that you might live. You know what's great about God? God did it for me before I ever did it for Him. 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I'll come to this earth and I will declare to you, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. I'll say, not my will, God, but yours be done. And I will live my life to serve and please you. I will die so that you can live. Because if I don't die, you can't live. So he died and I died and now we've become one spirit. So can you imagine if every married couple in the world would do this right here? If every husband would say to every wife, no longer will I live my life to serve and please me. From now on, I will live my life to serve and to please you. And if every wife would say, no longer will I live my life to serve and please me. From now on, I am on this earth to love and to serve and to please you. You think that marriage would succeed? Every one of them would. Every one of them would. See, the problem in marriage counseling is that we're counseling with live people. Marriage counseling would go much better if we were counseling with dead people. Just two dead people. If they're both dead, then you see, what happens is, they come in and you say, well, this is what you're supposed to do to the wife. She's okay, because she's dead. She's dead. Okay, that's what I'm supposed to That's what I'll do. Say to the husband, this is what you're supposed to do. Okay, but they don't do it. They say, no, wait, no, no, wait, 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 no, no, no. E.B. Hill preached a message on this one time, and he called it sitting up in the casket. He said the church, is, you know, we're supposed to be dead. But he said every time a new car or a pretty girl goes by, we sit up in the casket. <laughs> That's the problem. We don't die. And we are not going to be successful in the Christian life. And we're not going to be successful in marriage as long as we are alive. That's why this principle goes farther than just marriage. Whether you're married here or not, you need to die. You need to die to self, you need to die to flesh, you need to die to those things that are in your life that are trying to run you and serve you and, and, and take over in you. There has to be a place where we come to this, where we die. When Debbie and I did this, that's when we began living. When we died in our marriage and said, listen, I am on this earth to serve her. That's my purpose. 
My purpose, my first purpose on this earth is to love and serve my family. Through the Lord. With the Lord's, with the Lord's direction, the Lord's help. And when we did that, everything changed. Amos 3.3 3 says, can two walk together unless they're agreed? Can two people walk together unless they're agreed? Unless they're in unity? And yes, unless they become one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Now, now let's think about that for a minute. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, the Lord is three. No, the Lord is one. Because those three are one. They're one in heart, one in purpose, one in unity, one in spirit. And we were created in His image. We were made to be one with someone else. That's His image. Two coming together being one. Now see, the world fights this. The world says, don't lose your identity. The world says, when you get married, don't give up your career. Don't give up this. Don't give up your identity for that purpose. Listen, listen to me. This is how Satan is. He lies and he doesn't, it's such a lie. It's so easy when you read the Bible. I'm not saying you have to give up your identity. That's not what God is saying either. See, even in the body of Christ, each of us have gifts. Even in the body of Christ, some of you may be prophets, some of you may be teachers, some of you may be servants, some of you may be pastors, some of you may have this gift or that gift or that gift. God doesn't say, I want everybody to be prophets. I want the whole body to be prophets. Can you imagine? The whole body's prophets. The Lord says, no, the Lord said, no, the Lord says, no, the Lord said. You know, that's not what God wants. He wants us all to be different. We're all uniquely gifted. He doesn't want us to give up our different gifts, our different strengths, our different identities. What He wants us to give up is our agenda, our program. We're going to go my way and nobody else's way. Have you ever, have you ever worked, tried to work on a team with someone who wasn't dead? Who kept trying to focus it and gear it and we're going to try, we're going to, kept trying to steer the meeting a certain way? Can you imagine if everyone on the team was dead? It'd be wonderful. You don't have to give up your identity. Listen, the Father has an identity. He has his own personality, his own identity. The Son has his own identity. The Holy Spirit has his own identity. Yet they're one. The Father never gets up in the morning and forgets who he is. He never gets up and says, Now am I the Son or am I the, am I the Spirit? I don't remember which one. He knows who he is. He has his own identity. And I'm not saying, ladies, and I'm not saying, men, you give up your own identity. And I'm not saying you lose your personality. I'm saying, though, you have to die to controlling and manipulating and getting your way all the time. You have to give up your agenda. You lose your agenda and you gain your purpose. You will never accomplish all that God wants you to accomplish without learning this principle of becoming one. One can put a thousand to flight. Two can put ten thousand to flight. You will always be able to accomplish more with a team than by yourself. Always. That's the principle of God. And we've got to come to this place where we understand that. Let me just show you how, how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, and how even though they're one, there are different activities. First Corinthians twelve, verse four says, There are different diversities of gifts. But the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works in all. Now, just look at those three verses for a minute, all right? What he's saying is that we all have different gifts, 
We have different ministries. We have different activities. But we all should have the same spirit. We should all have unity. But even in this verse, it gives us something. I'm telling you, there's so many nuggets in the Bible. It's a, it's a wonderful book. I recommend it to you. You haven't read it yet. It's on the best-selling list. You need to read it. It's a great book. Even in this, now watch, watch, I underline some words because I want you to see if you pick up something. He's talking about there are different activities and different giftings, but there's unity, there's one. And once you notice how he said it, in verse 4, I underline the word spirit. Verse 5, notice the word Lord. And verse 6, are y'all getting it? Notice the word God. Do you know what you're looking at in those three verses? The Trinity. There it is. There's the Trinity. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Lord of Lords, and God the Father. Right there. Matter of fact, let me show you another verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. The whole thing's about unity. It says, let us endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he goes in this principle of being one. Watch what he says, though. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is above all and through all and in you all. You know what he's saying through the whole thing? There's one, one Lord, one faith, one purpose, one spirit. We should all be one. We should be in unity. That's the whole passage of Ephesians 4 here, verses 1 through 9. It's all talking about unity. But I want you to notice again. Verse 4, notice the word spirit. Verse 5. Notice the word Lord. Verse 6. Notice the word God. Is that good? And, and you know what's incredible about them? The same verses. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's verse 4, 5, and 6, Spirit, Lord, God. In, verse, in Ephesians 4, it's verse 4, 5, 6, Spirit, Lord, God. Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, the Lord, and God, the Father. Is that good? Y'all should be more excited about that. When I found that, I was real excited about it. That's exciting. What it's saying is that even though the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are different, they are one. And that's what we have to do. We have to become one. We have to die to our own agenda. What I am preaching today is the key to a successful marriage. If both parties are dead, they can have a successful marriage. When one of them wants his own way or her own way, now we've got problems. When they're both dead. This is not only the key, though, to a successful marriage. This is the key to a successful life. This is the key to being a successful Christian. When are you going to lie down and die? That's the question. When are you going to die? I preached a message one time called, Die or Be Killed. Because I want you to know something. You're going to die. You just choose whether you die or God kills you. One or the other. Because He's going to give His way. Because he wants to live through you. And he will take you through experience after experience after experience to get you to finally give up and die. And when you finally die and he lives his life through you, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. When are you going to quit trying to control your circumstances and manipulate people? I had a friend of mine. We used to go on these retreats. It's about 12 or 14 of us all pastors. And we'd go on these retreats and... There was one guy, we'd pull up in the vans, you know, or the bus at the at the condominiums or wherever we were staying. There was always one guy. We'd all get out and start getting our luggage and all. There was always one guy, as soon as he got off the bus, before he got his luggage, he'd go in and he'd scope out all the rooms, you know, trying to pick out the biggest room, the best room. You ever you ever known someone like that? Some of you are thinking, I've done that before, yeah. <clears throat> okay, that's, I'm preaching to you. Okay. 
So he'd go in. We'd all be getting our luggage, and he'd go in. He'd run to every room, check out, you know. And then he'd have one little carry-on bag. He'd settle on the bed. He, you know, that this is my room, you know. And I would just walk in, and the first empty room I came to, I just put my my suitcase. And now you have to understand, I didn't grow up this way. I grew up manipulating, controlling. I had to all, I had to all, I was just like this guy. But when I got saved, I didn't care anymore. I just, I didn't, it didn't matter to me anymore. God will take care of me. So I'd go in and I'd put my suitcase on, you know, in the first entry room I found. And then in a little while, this guy would get his luggage and then he'd go around to all the rooms just to make sure, you know, that he had the right one. And every time, every time, without fail, I always got the better room. Always. He'd come in and he'd say, this is a king-size bed, isn't it? I'd say, "Uh, yeah, I guess it is. And then, you know, he'd be like, I must not have seen this room. And then he'd look and say, you've got a huge TV in here, don't you? Yeah, I guess I do. And then he'd go in the bathroom and say, you got a jacuzzi tub in here. You know, and th- th- it was always this way. Listen to me. God can pick a better room than you can. And he can pick a better house and a better car and a better job and a better place to live and better friends and a better spouse than you can. But you're going to have to die. Now, this principle hit me so strongly about it one year after I was saved. One year. I got saved at 19 years old and started preaching almost immediately. One year later, someone in our family passed away and they asked me to do the funeral. It's the first funeral I'd ever done. Uh, I'd been saved one year. Let me just tell you right now, it's not wise to ask someone who's been saved one year to do a funeral. <laughs> and I didn't know anything. I had to go to the funeral director and the funeral director had to tell me, stand there. You know, I stood, you had, I don't know if you know this, but you stand at the head of the casket. When people are coming by. See, I know all this now. The pastor, I, I lead the, the casket out. You know, see, y'all didn't know this stuff to you. I lead them out with the pallbearers behind me. When they get to the graveyard, I have to stand at the head of the casket. I lead. Always stand at the head. Never stand at the feet. See? Well, of course, obviously, I stood at the feet. I did everything wrong. And the funeral director has to say, <clears throat> a little down here, you know. And so he was helping me through the whole thing. And so I preached the memorial service, and then we go to the graveside. Well, I, I didn't know what to do. And the funeral director said, you ride with me. And so I got in the hearse with the funeral director. And so I'm in the hearse with the casket now. You know, I'm in the hearse. And the Lord started speaking to me about death. And he gave me this revelation about death. And it just blew me away. And so when I got out there, I I, I just wanted to share this new revelation God gave me. But again, I've only been saved a year. So I don't don't really know how to be tactful like I do now. That's not funny. So anyway, I jump up. Now, let me tell you something else about funerals. People don't look at you at funerals. They glance at you, especially at the graveside. In the memorial service, they do a little more. In the graveside, they don't, they don't look at you. They glance. You know why? Because there's a dead person beside you. There's a casket up there, and people don't like to look at death. So people kind of sit like this, and they kind of look up. They give, they give you a little nod like you're doing good, you know, and then they go back down, you know. Well, they glance up and they look right down. So they're all looking down. And the funeral director, you know, gave me the thing to get started. And I said to him, God was talking to me in the hearse on the way over here. That's the way I started it. 
Well, I got their attention. You know, they kind of looked up like that. And I said to them, listen to me. God told me that you can't kill me because I'm already dead. Now, that just, you know, I just lost it by that time. Now, the revelation was true, but I, the delivery needed something, you know. But this is what God showed me. God showed me that a year earlier, now 21 years ago, but a year earlier from that time, I had died. In that motel room, I died. I said to God for the first time in my life, not my will, but yours be done. Now, listen to me carefully, because I believe there are some of you sitting here that you think you're a Christian, that you've never died. And I've got news for you. I'm talking about some of you going to church your whole life. If you've never died, you will die one day. Matter of fact, the Bible calls hell the second death. And you know what it says? It said those who've experienced the first death don't experience the second death. What that means is, if you'll get saved on this earth and die on this earth, you don't have to experience hell, the second death. But if you don't die on this earth, you're going to experience death for the rest of your life, eternity, for all eternity. I'm telling you, this is more important than you think, and there are some of you sitting here today that believe in Jesus, but you've never died. And if you don't die, you're in trouble. So what the Lord revealed to me that day was, I'd already died. In that motel room, I said, God, I don't want to live. I don't want to go on this way. I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to live. I die so that you can live through me. And the Lord Jesus stepped into my body. Is that right? The Lord's living in me now. And if he had not stepped into this body that day, this body would have died. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, I, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, Christ, lives in me. And it also says this in Romans 8, it says, The Spirit that lives within us now quickens our mortal bodies. The reason that I have life right now is because the Spirit is in me quickening this body right now. I'm alive. And that was the revelation, was I was saying, You can't kill me because I already died. And you can't even, even if you shot me, if God's not finished with me, I ain't leaving. I'll stay. If He's finished with me, I'm leaving. Because God is in control of this life now. I have no choice. I have no choices. I have no rights. I died in that motel room. Now see, here's the question. If I died then, how am I still alive? I'm alive by the Spirit of God now. And here's the great thing. I'm never going to die. I'm never going to die. I already died. I'm, I've started my eternal life right now. Listen to me. My body will die one day. But I'm not going to go on the inside. You say, well, well, okay, okay. What's going to happen, though, when you, you know, die or when you, when you go to be with the Lord? It's real simple. Well, Jesus is, Jesus is going to say to me, we've been living in your house for a long time now. Let you and I go live in my house. And when he says that, he and I will leave, and this body will then fall down on the ground, and you'll gather around and say, oh, what a shame, Robert died. But you're too late. I died 21 years ago. If you wouldn't have a funeral, you should have had it 21 years ago. That's when I died. Matter of fact, you go to the town where I grew up, and you go to the police department, to any of the policemen that were police when I was a teenager, and you say to them, I saw Robert Morris last week. They say, is he still alive? Is it, where'd you see him? Were you in prison? No, no, uh, he's, he's pastor of a church. You know what they say? They say, we're not talking about the same Robert Morris. And you know what? It's, it's true, because that one died. And there's a new one now. 
Totally new. Jesus is now living in me. The life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, you have to understand that in order to get saved, you have to die. And I died, and God gave me that revelation. And I can't respond now the way I want to respond. Dead people don't respond to you. Have you ever noticed that? Talk to a corpse sometimes. See if they'll talk back to you. Go to a corpse and see it. Hit them and see if it hurts them. Criticize them and see if they get their feelings hurt. You know, I heard about this uh, guy that was uh, working at a florist. And he went and he had to put the uh, put a spray on the, he was nude, and he had to put a spray on the casket, and he had to put a pin on the, uh, you know, a little flower on the corpse. And uh, so he's trying to, you know, do it right on the lapel, and it's all, you know, all this stuff, and he's trying to, and so the, the mortician came in, and he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm trying to put this flower. So the mortician takes the flower and takes the pin and just went, just like that, and the corpse never even moved. Never moved. I'm sorry to tell you all that story. That's actually Marcus's story, so you get, you get mad at Marcus. He told me that. Here's the point. So you all are like, man, that was my grandma. <laughs> okay. Clerks don't feel anything. They don't get angry at you. They don't take offense. They don't yell at you. They're dead. And I'm going to tell you something. Your marriage would be healed if you'd die. And you'd be a lot better person if you'd die. Dead people don't have to manipulate. They don't have to try to control. Dead people aren't insecure. They're not inferior. They're not fear. They don't have fear. They don't have anxiety. They don't have worry. They don't have stress. They don't have ulcers. Stress. If you have stress, stress and headaches or a sign that you're not dead because you're worrying about something. And dead people don't worry. And I'm going to tell you something. If you'll go ahead and die, you'll have more peace than you've ever had. Right now, listen to me. I died 21 years ago. I'm experiencing, according to the Bible, a taste of things to come. Now, I need to explain that to you. Right now, I'm already experiencing a part of heaven. Right now. Right now. You have to understand this. Eternal life started for me on the day I died 21 years ago. And I understand I'm living in a body. I understand all that. I'm not talking about that. But listen, the Bible says that on this earth we have a taste of the good things to come. A taste of the good things to come. Now you have to understand something about a taste. A taste is real. A taste is not imaginary. You don't have to imagine what a taste is. A taste is real. If I said, I'm going to give you a taste of banana pudding, and i got a spoon here, I'm going to give you a taste of banana pudding, would there be something in the spoon, or would it just be air? There'd be something in the spoon, right? That's a taste. And when I put it in your mouth, there would be substance to it, right? taste the banana pudding. It wouldn't just be, I wouldn't put an empty spoon in your mouth and say, that's banana pudding. Just try to imagine it. See, that's not what God does. God doesn't say, I'm giving you a taste of heaven. Listen to me. It's real. What I am tasting right now is real. And it's a taste. It's not the whole banana pudding, but it's a taste of things to come. But you have to die before you can get that taste.
Now, the Lord spoke to me this week and corrected me on something I've been doing when I preach on marriage. I've been missing something. When I preach on marriage, I preach extremely strong to the men. The reason I do is because in our marriage, the way our marriage was healed was when I got straightened out. And so I, I just think, well, if every man would do the right thing, his marriage would work. Even Pastor Jimmy, when he preaches on marriage, his marriage was healed because he was the one that was wrong. And when he started doing the right thing, his marriage got healed. And the Lord said to me, it's not always the man who needs to lead in doing the right thing. Now listen to me carefully. I believe the man's supposed to be the leader. But this is the reason that my marriage was healed when I did the right thing. Listen carefully. Is because I was the dominant one. And no marriage will be healed until the dominant one dies. And in about half the marriages, it's the woman. She's the one that's always manipulating, always controlling, always worried, always trying to make sure everything's right. And ladies, I'm not getting down on you because half, the other half's the men. I'm talking to both of you now. But I'm telling you, when you're the one that's like that, you also try to control the marriage. Listen to me carefully. Manipulation is witchcraft. Manipulation is trying to control through the spirit behind the scenes, but not the right spirit, not God's spirit. God doesn't manipulate. God doesn't go around when he wants to do something. He goes directly to it. Hinting is manipulation. Dropping hints is manipulation. And you will never have the marriage you want until you die, if you're the dominant one. And do you know how I know this? See, the word dominant comes from the word dominion. The dominant one in the marriage is the one who rules, the one who has dominion. And guess what? That's not supposed to be the man either. You know who's supposed to rule in the marriage? Jesus is. He's the dominant one. He's the one with dominion. And guess what? You know how you got saved? You know how you were fixed? The one with dominion died first. And that fixed you. And if you want your marriage healed, the one who's dominant is going to have to die first. Now, the one who's passive has to die too because we have now what's known passive aggression. Because the one who's passive is tired of being dominating, so they begin to dominate through passivity. But it's still wrong. Neither one of you are supposed to dominate. The one who's supposed to dominate... It's called Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you want your marriage healed, and if you want to be a successful Christian, you're going to have to die. Lay down and die. And watch what happens. Your ulcers will go away. Your stress will go away. Your worry, your anxiety, your fear will go away when you die and let him be in control.